Today's reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay, lest your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you, your voice, and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And that's the word of God. Thanks, Patrick. Let's pray. Lord uh, Jesus, um, great are you and uh, greatly to be praised not just this morning, but for uh, in all places and for all time. God, we uh, come uh, this morning as children uh, coming before their daddy, eager to hear what it is that you would have for us. Lord Jesus, may we not be hasty. Lord Jesus, I know in my own heart I feel hasty often. but way we would come in uh, humble reverence before your throne this morning that we would receive and listen to what you would have. Lord Jesus, may you be, um, would you go before uh, my words? Would you blow away that which is not true? That would you would let uh, the things that are true settle upon our hearts, that we would continue to be transformed more and more into the image of your son for your glory for our good and for the good of people that do not yet know, that have not yet tasted and seen how good our God is. We love you. We ask this all in your glorious name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jason. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. I serve alongside Dan and Pat and Chris and uh, John. And um, if you're new with us uh, this morning, we're continuing through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were here last week, we paused in that study and in that book, and we uh, had a time of uh, celebration where we had kids in here, and we passed around the mic and talked about ways in which um, God is moving. And it was uh, good and profitable and just excited that we got to do that. I'm also excited that we're moving back into Ecclesiastes. I'm kind of a task-oriented kind of person. So I'm like, all right, let's, like, let's get back at it kind of thing. So if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open up Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, you have your Bible, you open that up, and you hit um, Psalms. Just continue to turn to the right, and at some point you will hit Ecclesiastes. Um, and as we get there, I want to take a moment and I want to remind us of where we've been. Um, typically, I, I have a hard time remembering things. Um, if I've met you, you know that. 
And if I ask you again, like, oh, yeah, did, did we meet? Oh, yeah, your name, right? Um, typically, I have a hard time remembering things. Just ask my wife. Um, so I try to introduce repetition into my life. I'm kind of a, um, I'm kind of, uh, I've got my rhythm, even to uh, where I eat uh, lunch on a typical basis. Usually it's Qdoba, and that's why I remember that that's what I had for lunch yesterday is Qdoba, because that's what I do. So repetition is a good and healthy thing, and being reminded of things is a good and healthy thing, and so we're going to spend a couple minutes just setting the table, as it were, about what we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes before we jump into chapter 5. So what have we seen? I think if we're honest, we've seen a lot of vanity in one way or another, there's a preacher who's giving this uh, sermon, so to speak, and there's a penman who's writing these words down for us, and he's covered a barrage of different topics. He's talked about wisdom, wealth, fame, glory, influence, health, power, and a myriad of other things that are all found under the sun. And after... All of that, he concludes that they and even he is chasing after the wind, that it's all vanity. And I think it's helpful to remember uh, what Pastor Dan um, helped bring our minds to at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes is what that word vanity really means. He told us that the Hebrew word for vanity is havel. It's a, a mist. It's unsubstantial. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's temporary. It's not permanent. It's moving. It's not affixed. And so the preacher's conclusion is that people, including himself actually, are striving to grasp to lay hold of things that are truly a mist. They are vanity. Now, some of those things are good things that are vanity. We've seen that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of those things are not so good. But that's not really the preacher's primary point. The preacher is actually more concerned about communicating the vanity of these things than attributing value to them. He wants us to really understand and know that the things under the sun are truly vanity, all of it. A mist here today and gone tomorrow. And I would submit that that theme, the vanity of life, is purposeful. That there are reasons, actually, that God intended for us to know about the fleeting nature of life under the sun. Um, I've entitled this sermon. This morning, the vanity of life and the eternality of God. And if you're a note taker, here's the roadmap this morning that we're going to look at. There's really two primary parts of the sermon. Part one, there's a lingering question in chapter five, verses one through seven, that continues to haunt me. As I've read through the text and as I've studied through the text for the last several days, there is a question that is just continues to be begged and therefore should be answered. And that question is this question. What does fearing God have to do with this life of vanity? 
And it comes from the end of verse 7. Let's look at it. It says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. And here's the question. But God is the one you must fear. So what does fear have to do with the life of vanity? How do those two things relate to one another? So that's part one. Fear and vanity. Part two, how does our understanding of that fear and that vanity shape or influence these practical instructions about worshiping God that we find in verses one through six? So pretty simple. Part one, vanity and the fear of God. Part two, practical instructions about worship. And Lord willing, as we walk through both of those two things, my prayer is that we are going to see the glorious juxtaposition of the vanity of life and the eternality of God. So, part one, what does fearing God have to do with the vanity of life? Let's back up a little bit. Um, If we think about the 30,000 foot view studying through Ecclesiastes, we've seen the preacher, as I've said, study through a lot of different things. And then in in chapter three, for the very first time, I think, he draws our um, attention to the fear of God in verse 14. If you can flip there, um, we're just going to read that text real quick. uh, Chapter three, verse 14. He draws our attention here. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that, here's the purpose clause, so that people fear before him. And now in chapter five, uh, for the second time, and maybe even in a greater way, actually, the preacher is bringing our attention to fearing God as the required response for living a life that is called vanity. And the question that I have when I think about that is, well, why is it the fear of God? Why is that the required response? Why not loving God? Why not obeying God? Why not following God? Ecclesiastes 5 verse 7, but God is the one you must fear. Circle that word, fear. So what does fear mean? What what does it look like? What does it mean to fear God? Maybe that would be a helpful step to understand why it's the fear of God and not the love of God that is the required response here. Many people have thought that this word fear um, also encompasses the idea of reverence or respect or awe, and that very well could be the case. I also want us to consider another option, which it's possible that fear is actually the correct response for certain characteristics about God that only fear could appreciate. Let me say that again. It's possible that fear is the correct response for considering some of the characteristics about God that only fear can truly appreciate. Consider the words from Proverbs. Several different times, actually, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
See, fear and reverence are the correct, and I would argue the first response when the creation, us, you, and I, is met with the reality that our God, our God's the sovereign one. Psalms uh, 29 verse 10 puts it this way. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. Uh, Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours is thwarted. Fear and reverence see, are the, they're the correct response When the creation, you and I, consider the the reality that our God, our God is the holy and righteous one. Deuteronomy's uh, 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalms 111 verse 3 says, Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Fear and reverence are the correct response when we believe in his authority in heaven and our lowly position here on earth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. See, fear and reverence are the first seed, actually, of understanding the gospel of Jesus. It's with fear, actually, that we consider his words as being true. That we consider ourselves, you and I, as sinners and as Jesus as the substitute for our sin. All of these things and more is why the preacher in Ecclesiastes calls you and I to fear God. Because before you can love God, before you can obey God, and before you can follow God, you first must fear God. So, what does all of that have to do with the life of vanity? Well, Ultimately, the fear of God is the correct response for a life full of vanity because unlike pursuits in this life under the sun that are vanity, they are amiss, they're unsubstantial, they're moving, they're not affixed, they are fleeting, fearing God is not vanity. It is substantial. Its foundations are solid, unwavering, because it leads us to the only eternal God. The vanity of all of this life is juxtaposed next to the eternality of our God. And I would have us consider that that's one of the purposes that God has for us here. That the vanity of life is one day going to be replaced with the eternality of God. So that we might stand not in awe of the temporal things under the sun but instead that we would stand in awe of the full and eternal God above the sun. 
God has created us for eternity. He's created us for eternal blessings and gifts. And all of that is going to be accomplished by bringing us from this fleeting, misfilled life to Him. See, the fear of God leads us to acknowledge who He is, who He says you and I are in light of who He is, what we deserve, and how He has provided a way to make that right through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. See, that's what fearing God has to do with the vanity of life. It's the way that God is going to usher out the old and He's going to bring in the new. It's ultimately the response of reverent fear that causes us to see him as, as he is, to see ourselves for who we are without him as destitute sinners in need of grace, fully deserving of his righteous judgment. And it's fear, actually, that allows us to agree with him. where we can turn away from our sin and through faith accept Jesus' work on the cross as the only sufficient way to be made right before God. It's through that that he's going to usher it out and he's going to usher it in. He's going to transfer you from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the eternal king. Therefore, I love the therefores in scripture. I I underline them often. Therefore, or so that, right? Part two. There ought to be a difference for how we think about, how we interact and approach the vanity of life, the things under the sun, and the way that we think about the way that we interact, and the way that we approach the only eternal God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil, Be not rash with your words, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, when a fool's voice with many words. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This imagery is interesting. It uh, is somewhat similar to the uh, story of Moses where he comes before the holy of holy in the burning bush. And he removes his sandals as he approaches uh, the eternal God in humble trepidation and I'd argue fear. Because even the ground that he stood on was holy. Likewise, these words in Ecclesiastes would encourage us to observe ourselves, to consider ourselves, be reflective of ourselves as we approach God.
in this specific time period, this would most of likely happen in the temple where God's people would come to be where the God of the universe chose to make his dwelling. And either through observation, probably, but also through personal experience, I guess, I would guess, okay, the preacher tells us that they are hasty in coming to their daddy. That their heart is actually revealed by their quick tendencies to participate in the sacrifices. What's the box that I need to check? Okay, I'll check that. Move on to the next thing, right? Maybe even their heart uh, was revealed when, uh, excuse me, their heart is revealed for their their tendency to want to speak, maybe, and speak more words than they even ought to. That they're not all that interested in fellowship with God or worship of Him, but instead just wanted to get down to business, their business. And as the preacher says here, having little consideration for the profound gap that exists between God as the creator of all things and us as the creation, where the creation just wants the ears of the creator. Instead, the preacher tells us that we are to come and come to the eternal God with humility, preparing our, ourselves to come to receive, right? For to listen is better. This quiet, submissive instruction actually stands in opposition to many pagan religions of the times that use lengthy mantras that would be recited over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus in the New Testament condemned those things as well as vain prayers given by the people to impress others. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. The author of Pilgrim's Progress put it this way, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. The preacher continues to give us instruction in verses 4 through 6. Let's reread that. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow, then you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the word of your hands? For, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. See, although it was not necessary for God's people to vow things to God. There's actually uh, many places in the Old Testament where people did so, right? Where people would vow to do something for God if God would come to their aid. 
And the preacher points out that promises made unto God are actually a very serious thing and must be kept. Maybe one of the most hasty and tragic promises in the Old Testament is that of Jephthah. In Judges chapter 11, you know the story. Jephthah is about to go out and to uh, wreak havoc on the Ammonites. And what does he do before he goes off to war? He says, God, if you would give me victory, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me when I return. If you know the story, it ends up being his daughter. The preacher continues to say that it's actually better uh, that you should not vow than to vow in the heat of a moment and just not pay it. To make matters worse, the messenger, when he comes, don't put yourself in a position that you would lie. It's all been a mistake. No, 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 no. He heard me wrong. God can't be deceived. See, these verses seem to reinforce the idea found in James chapter 1, where we're encouraged to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And all of those things seem to have one greater theme in mind here, and that's to come before the eternal God, your daddy, but come in humility and reverence. For he is not like the things under the sun that are here today and gone tomorrow. He is the everlasting of everlasting of everlasting. So, how do we grow in all that? How do we grow in fostering a heart of fear to God? And how do we have that heart of fear spill over towards worship in Him? How do we do that? church? How do we do that together? How do we do that individually by God's grace? Well, maybe a decent step is to consider where you currently are today. Maybe a specific question that you could ask is, how has this study in Ecclesiastes hit you? Either this morning or over the longevity of this sermon series. Maybe a more specific question is, where are you at with this life of vanity theme? As we've been studying through Ecclesiastes, the theme of vanity has continued to crisscross the pages of Scripture. And so, it has been, rightfully so, a large theme that we've talked about over and over and over again. Where are you at with that? And then how might that impact your worship of God? Maybe if you could give me some grace and some latitude and say that there's two different uh, categories of people. Maybe the first one is uh, indifference. You've sat faithfully in the audience and you've listened to several different people open up God's word and speak through Ecclesiastes, and you agree, actually, with what God's word says, is that it's vanity. Life is vanity. All of these things are vanity. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're missed. And so you're out of place. If you're really honest, you're just like, so what's the point? Just indifferent. Maybe you're there. 
Maybe category group number two, maybe you have a little bit of disbelief. You've sat in the seat and we have continued to talk about vanity, but if you're honest with yourself and with others, you might agree in principle that life is truly vanity, but, but in reality, it doesn't really impact your life. Maybe you're there. If you're in the first group, it's possible that your beliefs about the vanity of the things under the sun can, if you're not careful, creep into the way that you interact with the God above the sun. You might have a spirit of indifference, not just to these things, but also to him. If you're in the second camp, it's possible that your disbelief about the vanity of life could be resulting in a distracted heart towards God. Not engaging Him as you ought to, prioritizing other pursuits, not considering that they truly are fleeting. And I would argue that regardless of where you might be, either in group one or group two or somewhere in the middle, a foot in both camps, Both the indifferent heart and the distracted heart need the same remedy. For me, I have been hit with the reality that my heart is far more distracted than God deserves. I'm guilty of coming to Him with a laundry list of things, most of which are usually my business the agenda that Jason wants to accomplish. Grand plans. A mind that is already fixed on the day's work. Conceptually, I know that my work is fleeting. I understand that right here. I do. But if you are in my house, if you would pull up a chair in the corner and sit quietly and observe, you would know that my heart, my mind is perpetually distracted. A great example of that is like when I'm not physically at work, you can see me sitting on the couch and my mind is spinning about things about work. I think about, this is crazy for most of you, I understand, but I think about how to milk cows differently. And if that's not strange enough, I think about how to handle their manure differently. And then I think about feed costs, and I think about labor, and I think about management structures, and I think about my five-year vision plan, and my one-year vision plan, and my strategy that's going to execute to my vision. Those are the things that entertain my mind. Now, Granted, those things aren't necessarily wrong or bad things. It might actually make me a decent provider for my home, a decent dairyman, or a decent business owner. But if my daily time with Jesus, maybe specifically, a specific example, with my daily time with Jesus, if I am continually preoccupied in my mind and my heart, and I'm not able to focus on and, 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 and worship in awe of who God is and what he has done, okay, if I'm in that place, like I need to be reminded of the vanity of life. 
And I need to replace it with a little more eternality of God. Practically, for me, what that means is when I'm in that place, usually I have to close this, I have to pull out my iPhone, and I have to click on Pandora, and I need to sit in a quiet room with no kids, with no other electronics, and I need to listen to deep, rich, gospel-proclaiming, Christ-exalting music to orient my heart and my mind to the things above the sun. I need people that understand the patterns of my life, like my wife, who's like, hey, you know, you just seem a little uh, distracted. How's your love and affection with Jesus going? I need people in my life that know who I am, that understand all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, and are able to encourage me towards continuing to lessen my my grip on the fleeting things of this world and continue to grab hold of the eternality of God. I need people in my community group to do that. I need a lot of people in my life to help preach to me the gospel when I don't believe or I'm not exercising the belief of the gospel. And in All of that, God in his kindness and his grace continues to meet me. He continues to draw closer to me, faithfully meets me where I am. See, whether I'm indifferent, because there's been seasons that I have been indifferent, or whether I have a season of being distracted, See, the remedy for either of those two things is to continue to believe, live, preach to yourself, have people preach to you the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus. That we would be a church that individually and collectively would fan into flame the fear of our God. that we would see all of the glorious things in this life, as good as they might be, as still vanity. And that daily, that we would would consider that if you believe and trust in Jesus, you have access to the only eternal God today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to transition into communion. God, I do just want to confess that I I so often do not give you the reverence that you deserve. And uh, most of the time, Lord Jesus, that is because I have a distracted heart that that needs to be pre- um, that my priorities need to change, Lord Jesus. And so I pray, God, for me, for this church, wherever we are in this journey of faith, God, that you would continue to grow us in fearing you, that we would consider the characteristics of who you are and what you've done, and that that would draw us into awe and worship and obedience. 
Lord, we love you. We want to make much of you. Help us do that. Help us do that in our lives in northern Colorado, whether we eat, live, uh, sleep, or play, wherever it is, Lord Jesus, that we would make much of you in our worship of you. We love you. We're thankful that you loved us first. Amen. We're going to take some time and we're going to celebrate the gospel through communion. Um, And we get to uh, actually do two things when we're doing communion. One of them is to reflect and then the other one's to celebrate. And so um, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read in uh, verse 23, the Lord's instructions around communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. That's what we're about to partake in. Remembering and proclaiming the gospel. The gospel that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and I. So that you, if you believe in God, if you believe in that gospel, that you have access to eternal life and eternal life with the eternal king. If you haven't yet bent your knee to Christ, consider today as the day of salvation for you. If you uh, don't call Jesus Lord, we would ask that you don't partake of the elements. The band is going to play. And we're just going to take a few moments and sit and reflect on the gospel. The gospel as it's intersected your life personally. Maybe take a few moments and uh, fill out one of these prayer cards as Dan mentioned. Maybe consider individuals in your life that haven't tasted and seen the glorious truths of the gospel like you have. Maybe write down their names on the cards so that we could pray with you for them. And then as you come and as you grab the elements, drop off that card in the basket, go back to your seats, and then just take the elements on your own time, and then we're going to continue to worship the King of Kings through song. Sinner, come near a thousand more songs.